Go ahead and open your Bibles up to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. On the bulletin, you see a picture of our theme that started in September. It's called To Boldly Go. Maybe if you're newer to the church, you saw that and you thought, what's with the space theme? Is the pastor like Star Trek or what do you mean to boldly go? Uh, We actually launched that theme in September. Each year we try and pick a theme. uh, And we didn't even know we would be moving and actually going as a church somewhere at the time. So it's kind of uh, providential. Uh, But where that came from is the Great Commission says, go and make disciples. So we are boldly going and making disciples. In addition, it says, says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so in this annual theme of going and making disciples, we're hearing a year's worth of teaching straight from the Lord Jesus himself. We're teaching them to obey everything he commanded. And so this morning, we're going to hear another uh, sermon from Jesus himself on a topic And the topic this morning is heaven or hell? Heaven or hell? When it comes to the next life, we're fascinated by anyone who claims to know anything about it. For example, people who died and then came back from the dead, like who perhaps died on the operating table and then came back, or or were in a coma for a long time. Everybody wants to know what it was like. There was an article written uh, last year, and it was called, Is Hell Real? Um, listing stories such as Matthew Botsford's story, where in March of 1992, he walked out of a restaurant in Atlanta and and got shot in the back of the head and he died. He died and they brought him back. He was in a coma for 27 days. And when he awoke, he reported that utter darkness enveloped him as if a thick black ink had been poured over his eyes. He later described being hung over an abyss with heat blasting him from below, a pair of demonic eyes creeping toward him before a divine entity grabbed him by the waist and said, it's not your time. You're like, is that real? Is that true? Is that what happens after you die? Um, There's also someone named uh, Professor Howard Storm who rose to fame after claiming after dying he had been viciously attacked by evil creatures in hell. He was unconscious before emergency surgery. Um, And he wrote a book called My Descent into Death. He said he claimed to try and pray, but angry creatures screamed at him and said, there is no God. Then he woke up. Is it true? Is that really what it's like? What happens after we die? There was a man in 1943 who died in World War II. He was pronounced dead in an army hospital, and he woke up nine minutes later. Nine minutes later. He wrote several books, and he claimed that in that short time, Jesus gave him a personal tour of hell to show him the devastation that occurs. We're we're fascinated. These are bestsellers. When somebody comes back after dying and says, here's what it's like, there's what it's like. Uh, The the writer of this article at the end ends with a joke by saying, attempts to reach Lucifer for comment went unanswered. How do we really know? How do we really know one moment after you die? What's it like? What's it like? How do we really know? Uh, Thankfully, Jesus was available for comment, and he wrote his comments down. They were recorded in in the Bible by his followers. He commented on heaven and hell. He told us what to expect, so we don't need to be left wondering. And in Luke chapter 16, verse 19, uh, Jesus shares a story with us that illustrates what heaven and hell are going to be like. Now, this is most likely a parable. Most likely a parable, meaning it's a story uh, that's made up, but it contains within it real truths. This is not supposed to be read as if this is exactly what heaven and hell are going to be like to the detail, but, but there is a real heaven and hell, and these do teach us real truths about those real places. So let's read what Jesus says in chapter 16, verse 19. 
He says this, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Jesus begins by uh, casting this story with two characters. There's a rich man and there's a poor man. There's a man who's got it all in this life. He's on the top. And there's a man who has nothing in this life. He's on the bottom. The first point that I'm going to give you is actually a sentence. I'm going to give you parts at a time. Here's the first thing you can write down. Whether I enjoy wealth and prosperity, comma. That's a cliffhanger. Whether I enjoy wealth and prosperity, comma. Go ahead and write that down. This is the rich man. This is the man who's got it all in this life. He has wealth. He has prosperity. But something's going to happen to him. Uh, This man symbolizes everyone in this life who's got a pretty good life. You're making it. You're doing well. In fact, you're doing better than well. You've been blessed in some measure. The rich man's accounts were loaded. If there was a lifestyles of the rich and famous, he'd be on it. All right? He was rich. Here's a picture. This is from Forbes magazine. A picture of some of the richest people, uh, the richest people in our day. Of course, Bill Gates, number one, 77.3% billion dollars at his disposal like i'd settle for the point three you know like forget the 77 just give me the point three and i'll be happy that's billions of dollars that he can do whatever he wants with he's rich people on this list got there uh in our day through computers and technology communication casinos and walmart walmart the walton family They got there. They made it. They're rich. They're on top. They're wealthy. Uh, The original listeners would have assumed this rich man was blessed by God. He must be wealthy because God must like him. Therefore, he must be spiritually wealthy too. He's got God's favor because he's got financial wealth and he's got his health. They would have assumed he was spiritually good and fine. He was also an Israelite. We'll find out later. He was within the citizenship of Israel. And so if he was a Jew and he was rich, God loved him, or so they thought. He was a rich man. He was also dressed in purple. It says he was clothed in purple and fine linen. Uh, Now, you know, purple is no big deal to you and me today because we can get whatever color outfit we want, right? But back then, if you had purple clothing, it meant you were rich. The only way you can get purple anything was to have it imported, and they only had a couple ways they could make it, all expensive and time-consuming. So if you had purple, even a little purple sash or something, you were letting the whole community know that you were loaded. And this guy was clothed in purple. He looked fantastic. He only wore designer clothing. It said, it said that he wore fine linen, the finest fabrics that he could get his hands on. He was, it was purple. It was fine fabric. This guy was dressed nice. Uh, Do you know what? If you want to look fantastic today, you could go and buy a designer expensive suit. Father's Day is coming up, so guys, why don't you put this one on the list? This is Alexander Amosu's Vanquish 2 bespoke suit. It's only $103,000. (laughs) $1,000. It was made with uh, diamond and gold encrusted buttons and the finest uh, wool that can be made or found. It's rare in its, in its fabric and it's ornate. In, and so a hundred and plus thousand dollars and it can be yours. This guy was making a statement with his clothing. 
he was rich. He was dressed. Uh, and it also says here, he, look at verse 19, clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. Two words there. The first one just means celebrated. And so the, there's an assumption that he was doing it through feasts and parties. It just means celebrated or partied. And then the second word either means fancy, meaning he was partying with some really fine, extravagant stuff, or he was flashy about it. He was showing everybody just how rich he was. In either case, he was feasting and partying, and he was doing it indulgently or extravagantly. He was on the top. Ask yourself this, is this the destination that your heart is seeking in this life? Money, stuff, wealth, reputation. If I have that, I'll be set. Um, Just be honest, is your heart really going for that? In your future, would you really like to arrive at that? Um, Well, does the Bible say that that's wrong? Like if I have money, is there some sort of a penny threshold where once I make one more penny than that amount, I'm sinning in my income? No. What about stuff? Is there a certain year I can't get a new car? It's got to be at least five years older. I'm sinning in my purchase. No, it's the condition of your heart that makes it sin or not sin. Psalm 62.10 says, If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Meaning they don't become the foundation of your identity, the thing everyone else knows you for, the direction everything in your life is taking you. In other words, an easier way to put it is, don't let money or stuff become your hokey pokey. That's what it's all about. Money and stuff. Don't let it become your everything. You're consuming everything. If you glance up at Luke chapter 16, verse 13, you can see the, what Luke, the, uh, the person who assembled all these texts, is trying to say. It says here in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And in verse 14, he starts to indict the Pharisees who were lovers of money. What's Jesus doing? Tell him this story of this rich guy. He's indicting the priests and religious teachers and Bible scholars of his day who loved money. This rich man was exactly who they loved to be. So therefore, this is not a righteous rich man. This is a wicked rich man, which is made clear in verse 20. It says in verse 20, And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And there's no indication that this rich man gave this poor man even a crumb. Okay? And this poor man now stands for something else. Write this down. Whether I enjoy wealth and prosperity or I endure suffering and misery. Write that down. Or I endure suffering and misery. This now symbolizes those in this life who are going through awful trials. You don't have the health that you would like. You're not making what you want. You don't have much. You're losing things. This is the downcast. This is the hurting. This is, hey, whether I enjoy wealth and prosperity or I endure suffering and misery, this guy's going to have an end too. Where are both of these lives headed? This is where Jesus is taking us. But just for a moment, pause there. You've seen, you've seen homeless or poor people in your life, right? You've seen them. But have you ever opened up your front door and on your way out tripped over one? who was sitting at your door, because that's what this rich man had. Lazarus, the Bible says, 
It says he was laid there. That's a strong word. It doesn't just mean like sat nicely. It means dumped or dropped like garbage. He was thrown there. People were like, well, let's get him out of here. Where do we put him? Let's just dump him at the rich man's gate. Hopefully he'll get some food. And this guy was laid there, which indicates he couldn't get up and move on his own. Either he was too hungry or he was perhaps paralyzed or something, but he couldn't even move himself around. All right. This guy was enduring and suffering misery. He was starving. He had nothing, no money, no clothes, no food. He was just laying there. He was carried there. He was dropped there. Sometimes pictures really grip me. Check out this picture. When I think of a poor man, I just, that picture just says so much. And that was this guy's life. Couldn't get up. So now you see the rich man through different eyes. He's not just feasting and showing off and indulging. He's doing it with a homeless guy at his door. And the indication is he's not even giving this guy a crumb. This guy is just, this poor homeless guy is just sitting there longing for a scrap, for leftovers, and he's not even getting that. He's enduring suffering and misery. He's got sores on his body, which means he doesn't even have his health. He's sick. He desires to be fed. He's not even getting crumbs. What a miserable life. It says, then dogs licked his sores. This is supposed to gross you out. Do you have dogs? Dogs are gross. Just going to say it. Dogs are gross. I know they're cute, but they're also really gross. The things they find in the yard, and they'll eat it. And, and our dog found raccoon droppings once, and it was the best day of his life. He wanted to roll all over it and then bring it in the house to share it with the pack, you know. It was this, oh, how could you roll on it? It's just so disgusting. And, and, and the things the dogs will lick, my dog will lick all of himself, right? Our dog found a diaper in the garbage once. Oh. Ugh. And then he licks us like, you taste good too. What do I taste like if he's going to lick me? Do I need a new soap? That's just, it's disgusting. And these aren't pets. These are like stray dogs, like flea infested rabies, like never been trained, like licking pussy sores on this man's body. So the dog was gross and the guy was gross because either he can't chase him away or he doesn't chase him away. You wouldn't let your kids go by this guy. You wouldn't feel clean shaking his hand. You, you'd look away. This guy is so detestable. So the first man, the rich man, is attractive in every way. The second man is repulsive in every way. The first man's on the top. The second man's on the bottom. The first guy's got everything. The second guy's got nothing. Who's going where? Let's find out. It says in verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Write this down. Whether I enjoy wealth and prosperity or endure suffering and misery, I will soon die and enter the next life. Hey, your day's coming. God could show you the day on the calendar. Your day's coming. My day's coming. Whatever else you become in this life, you will be buried like a bone in the end. And everything you had in this life goes away. What matters at that moment is what you have waiting for you in the next life. The original listeners to this would have assumed the rich man was blessed by God and going to heaven. The poor man was cursed by God, spiritually filthy, unclean. 
incapable of doing anything pleasing to God. He was definitely, most definitely going to where? Huh? Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side? Abraham lived 2000 BC. He was the founder of faith. He was the founder of Israel. God made promises to Abraham that through his offspring would come the promised people, the Jews, and would also come the Messiah, the Lord Jesus himself. So for a Jew to wake up and to be carried to Abraham's side was a portrait of heaven. It means that they're on God's plan. They're in God's family. They're one of God's people. They'll be in God's presence forever. And here, this rich man is not there. In fact, it just says he was died and he was buried. Here, the poor guy who was carried to the gate, what a picture of grace. This guy had to be carried around in this life and in the next life he's picked up and carried to heaven. What a portrait of grace. He was carried to heaven. And here, the rich man was just dumped in a tomb. The poor man died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. We don't know what to think about this. Does this mean everyone, when, di- when, you're di- when you die, go, you get picked up by angels and brought and you get to stand next to Abraham? We probably shouldn't push it to be that specific, but it's making a statement. This poor man, who everyone assumed would not go to heaven, was placed, uh, the Old Testament calls it, gathered to his fathers. means he went to heaven. He was numbered among God's people forever. And the rich man says in verse 22, the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Write this down. I will soon die and enter the next life. Then I will either go to heaven forever, comma. This is another part of the sentence I'm going to give you. Then I will either go to heaven forever, pause, The poor man was carried to heaven. The poor man was carried into the presence of those who died long ago. And and what happened to them? What happened to them? They're in God's presence right now. The righteous go to God's presence. God is not the God of the dead, but the living. And here, this guy who had been dead for 2,000 years, what was he doing? He was in heaven. And here, Lazarus, this guy, arrives at his side, and he's in heaven now. It's amazing. The fact that Abraham is there vindicates God's plan. Abraham is called the father of all who believe, meaning he's not just the father and the Lord or the founder of Israel. He's the founder of all believers. It says in Romans 4.16, he's the father of all who believe and have faith in what God promised. So the poor guy gets to go to heaven. But he endured misery and suffering in this life. Hey, listen, don't let your trials in this life deny that God loves you. Listen, you might love the Lord Jesus Christ and know Him personally and walk with Him and do everything right and God could give you a miserable life here because this isn't your home. This isn't your home. What could this guy do? He was flat on his back. He could do absolutely nothing and yet God's affections and love were on him and God kept His promises. Your hope is in heaven. Your hope's not here. And the rich guy who had everything, hey, listen, don't let your riches, don't let your net worth, don't let your stuff or your success lie to you. It means nothing to God. You shouldn't assume in any way because you got the job or got the raise or got the car, you're doing better than your neighbor, that it it means God loves you. It means nothing. It means nothing. Because here the rich man went to hell and the poor man went to heaven. But this really isn't a text about heaven. Jesus just kind of passes through. He He doesn't even let Lazarus say anything in this whole story. Heaven is really not described. It's just being described as being in the presence of Abraham, being a recipient of the promises, and being comforted. That's all we learn. We don't really learn about heaven, but we learn a lot about hell. So write this down. 
then I'll either go to heaven forever or I'll suffer in hell forever. You can write that down. This is where we're going to camp. This point is going to be the longest. Or I'll suffer in hell forever. The rich man symbolizes to you that you can gain this whole world and forfeit your soul. On the outside, you can convince everyone and yourself that you are blessed, that you've made it. You can have a lot of friends. You can have a lot of things. And you can be going to hell forever. The rich man stands for someone who lived in a careless, callous, godless indulgence, and he was therefore met with pain and poverty there. He had nothing in the next life. We're supposed to be shocked that he ended up going to hell. We're supposed to be shocked. And it's supposed to jar us and make us wonder if, if the trash bag of a human sitting on the doorstep doing nothing, being licked by dogs, is heaven-bound. And the rich guy who's got every blessing and perk in this world is hell-bound. Where am I? It's supposed to rattle you. It's supposed to make you wonder, where are you? It says that he's in Hades. Uh, Hades is one of the several terms used to name hell. Uh, Hades is actually a holding place. Um, it, means, it means the holding place where the wicked dead go after they die. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and you die, you go to a place called Hades. Uh, Hades is a holding place, and clearly here in this passage it's described as being a place of torment. Um, but it's not the final place for the wicked because there's going to be a final judgment. In the book of Revelation, it talks about all the dead, wicked and, and, and uh, righteous, being called back from the grave, resurrected, and they're being judged comprehensively, line by line, day by day, thought by thought. Every deed will be brought to account. And then there will be a just verdict handed down. And those who are wicked will then be thrown into what's called the second death, what's called the lake of fire. In fact, it says Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. So Hades is now the temporary holding place for those who are condemned. Therefore, hell starts a moment after you die. People are there right now. And this man was there. Uh, We learn the righteous go to paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, To be away from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. And somehow the righteous, when they die, those who have faith, will immediately be into the presence of the Lord. So what is hell actually? Uh, Basically, hell is this. Hell is eternal conscious torment. It's eternal. Some will say it's not eternal. It won't last forever. It's conscious. Some say, no, it's not conscious. It's just kind of, and some will say it's not torment. But the Bible teaches it's eternal conscious torment. Torment is a word used here. It says in verse 23, and in Hades being in torment. Uh, It's portrayed here by fire. Um, Many times in the New Testament when Jesus talks about hell, he talks about fire. Um, Does that mean it's going to be like physical fire? Well, it's going to be a little bit different. Um, The next world is going to be different than this one. The next body you have is going to be somewhat different than this one. It seems to be more of a spiritual experience with some measure of physical experience attached to it. For example, this guy is portrayed as being in a fire, but you know that if you were really in a fire, you wouldn't even be able to talk. Okay, it'd be so excruciatingly painful, you would just pass out and die. But here, it's more of, a, it's more of an enduring suffering. It's more, of an, it's more of a torment. So somehow his body is able to bear that, and yet it's still suffering. Uh, so don't get me wrong, it's real fire. But somehow it's experienced in a different way where it simply creates a state of torment. You can't fully understand it, but when Jesus wants you to think about it, he wants you to think about it as if you were standing in lava. It's about that pleasant. 
It's torment. It's also anguish. He says here in verse 24, for I am in anguish. In fact, he says in verse 24, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So here he just, one drop of water would improve my standard of living. Here, this is the rich man. Just, just one drop of water would improve my standard of living. But see, this man wouldn't give a crumb in the first life. So he's not given a drop in the next life. There is no smallest act the righteous will be permitted to do for those who are suffering in anguish in the next life. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. This is great news for those who are faithful and headed for heaven. Listen, never will anything ever send you to hell once you're in heaven. It's impossible. Never, though, this is awful news for the unbelievers, never will anything be able to bring you to heaven once you're in hell. It's impossible. Both states are permanent forever. So it's separation. It's separation from God. It's separation from the righteous forever. It's anguish. It's torment. What's hell like? Well, it's kind of like standing in fire, being thirsty forever, far away from God and far away from the righteous permanently. That's hell. Now, when you teach that, there's um, immediately objections to the idea of hell. Some will say, hell is unfair. How could a just God punish people forever for sins they commit in this life? Uh, Hell is not unjust. Hell is not unfair. Uh, Following a comprehensive courtroom hearing where your every act and deed and, and inaction will be brought into trial, at the end of your court hearing, it will be just. It will be fair. Listen, if you go down to Cook County and you start digging around for corruption and injustice, you'll find it. It won't take you long. You can spend eternity scrounging around God's courtroom after the final judgment for a shred of injustice, and you will find none, none. You will not be able to say of anyone who is in hell, it was unfair, they don't deserve that, this is unjust. You will not be able to say that. It will be justly handed down. In fact, canceling hell would create eternal injustice. Humans are big on justice, right? What happened in Benghazi? What happened in Benghazi? I want to know what that email said. Why? Because we want justice. What about that South Korean ferry? Was it overloaded? How did all those people die? Justice must be served. What what about Malaysia? Why aren't they telling us about uh, Flight 137 and what happened? Eleven terrorists, suspects, were arrested a week ago in connection with that flight going down. What happened? Justice must be served. You see, we love justice. We love justice because God is just. It's when we're on trial that we don't like justice. It's when our loved ones are on trial and that they will be justly judged, then we have second thoughts about justice. When you're watching the Hawks game and you want to make sure the goal went in, no, there's no question about justice there. Right? We love justice. Hell is just. Hell is fair. Some will say hell is unloving. It's it's unloving. I can't believe in a loving God who would sentence people to hell forever because hell is unloving. No, um, all of God's love is expressed fully and completely in His Son. Okay, there is no 
shortage, no lack, no withholding of God's love for every person in this world. He has poured out His love in His Son. He spared no expense to create a palace in heaven with streets of gold and crystal pearl gates and every jewel adorns the walls. His love is poured into heaven. Hell is for those who reject God's love. How can a loving God make hell? No, you don't understand it. It's not unloving to make hell. It's unloving for you to refuse heaven. I'm not going in there with God forever. That's unloving. And when you turn away from God's love where His Son reigns and rules forever and He's prepared paradise, when you turn away from God's love, what do you expect to find for you? How can you accuse God of being unloving when you turn away from His expression of love? The truth is it's unloving to refuse heaven. You still can't accept that a loving God would do that to anyone. Do you want Him to force His love upon people? Uh, Forced love is called rape. The next woman you see, the next woman you see who's about to marry Mr. Wrong, why don't you, hero, just go up to her and push her away from that man and force your love upon her, right? This is what's good for her. And then when you're in jail, I'll come visit you and say, hey, that didn't go so well for you because that's called rape. You forced your love upon someone. And then we'll talk about whether or not God should force his love on some people. The truth is, hell is not unloving. Refusing heaven is unloving. And therefore... It's not God who is unloving, but us. So God puts a gun to my head and says, believe or burn forever. No, if you cast God as the aggressor, nothing will make sense about this world or the next. Uh, War broke out in heaven and it was not God's fault. Okay, Angels rebelled against God and it spilled over into this life and we rebelled against God. All right? All right? You have a gun to God's head. You're the aggressor. We killed his son. We killed his son. And we expect him to let us into his house forever? What father would do that to an unrepentant person? It's a warped mind that thinks hell is unfair and hell is unloving. I'm not going to stand up here and apologize about hell as if God has some explaining to do or as if I'm not involved as a blameworthy cause. I'm the reason hell exists. I created hell. My sins made it necessary. My unlovingness toward God and rejection of Him and rebellion against Him made this other place possible. I've used this once before, but it's it's crazy when people accuse God of being the aggressor. Imagine you're on a plane that's going to crash and God gets on the plane and says, get off the plane. It's going to crash. And you said, I don't follow a God who allows planes to crash. Right, I just told you to get off the plane. No, I'm not following a God who allows planes to crash. Get off the plane. I told you I'm not following you off the plane because you're going to let the plane crash. It makes no sense. Blaming God for hell makes no sense. When he has poured all of his love possible into this world through his Son and made a heaven possible and you gripe about hell... It makes no sense. The truth is, God doesn't want anyone to end up there. Hell is therefore self-inflicted pain forever. In 2 Peter 3.9, we'll put it up on the screen, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4 says, This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Hell is not God's fault. Hell is my fault. When attendance is taken in hell, my name's going to be called. But I'm not going to answer because I won't be there. But I deserve to be there. This man gained the whole world and forfeited his soul. Notice that the man in Hades is not complaining as if something unjust has happened to him. He knows it's just. Uh, Let, therefore, hell's severity convince you of your depravity. Hell is severe because you are depraved. And let this man, who is basically calling to us from the grave, issue you a warning right now. He is forever outside of God's presence, away from all of his goodness, and he's calling to us. Reading on, it says in verse 27, he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, footnote says, and sisters, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. So now, too late, he starts thinking about his loved ones and and their eternity. He was partying it up, living it up in this life, getting getting drunk, getting fat, wearing the best clothes, and, and, and doesn't care about them at all. Then he goes on to the next life, and then he's like, it's too late. So he wants Lazarus to go back to him. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. So now this guy's starting to say, I want my loved ones to be reached. Uh, This is where we get our final point. Whether I enjoy wealth and prosperity or I endure suffering and misery, I'll soon die and enter the next life. Then I'll either go to heaven forever or I'll suffer in hell forever. So write this down. Here's the natural question. What determines my destination? What is it? How do I know I'm going there? How do I know where I'm going? Well, the first thing it says here is, it says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Moses and the prophets represented the Old Testament. This was the Bible of Jesus' day. So this rich man said, well, send somebody back to warn them. Hey, guess what? You're not going to want to go there. There's this house. And Abraham's like, they don't need that. Moses and the prophets are speaking. The word of God is speaking. God is speaking to them. They're getting the warning. Already being done. You're getting the warning. Do you believe what you are hearing? Do you believe what you're hearing about hell? See, some people will say, well, you get, you get a redo. You get to keep coming back and you get multiple tries. And then other people will say, no, when you're gone, it's just off switch. It's just dark and nothing happens. Other people will say, You know, everybody gets to go to heaven except they're just the really, really bad people. You see, there's other truths, but I'm sharing with you what the Word of God says. Are you hearing it? Are you believing it? Let them hear. So you've got to believe God's Word. You can jot that down. What determines my destination? You've got to believe God's Word. Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament was fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke through our fathers, the prophets, but in these last days, He spoke to us through His Son. You have to listen to what the Word of God says. You have to listen to what Jesus says. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? How do I know where I'm going? Well, do you believe God's Word? Do you believe God's word? And do you believe God's word is true not just for you, but for every other person in your life? Every nation, tribe, and tongue has to hear about Jesus to be saved. Do you really believe that? Because I do. That's what we're taught. 
What determines my destination or your destination? It's not that you were a good person. It's not not that you were a religious guy. It's not that you went through some classes. It's not that you walked some aisle or prayed some prayer. It's that you believed what you heard. It's so simple. It's so simple. It's such a simple truth. Believe and be saved. It's simple. There's no excuse because it's simple. He goes on to say, in verse 30, the rich man is still begging. Isn't that interesting that the rich man is now begging? Verse 30, and he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Just send somebody back from the dead to warn them because then they'll really believe it. This is Jesus teaching before he actually died and rose again. Isn't it interesting that God is going to grant this request? There would be someone who would rise from the dead and warn us of coming hell and offer us coming heaven. God would say yes to that. But sadly, it says here in verse 31, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Listen, there's not a lack of proof. Don't put God on the... Well, if God would do more miracles, if he would send more... Listen, the truth is, right here, right now, in this room, in this morning, I could bring up a casket here and poof, bring someone back from the dead before you. And there would be some people in this room who still would not believe God is powerful and loving and able to save. It wouldn't be enough because it's not an evidence problem, it's a heart problem. You refuse to be convinced. Believe God's word. This is also fascinating too. It's the guy in hell who uses the word repent. Go and warn them that they might repent. So write this down, repent of your sins. Believe in God's word and believe what you hear. And then repent of your sins. What is the gospel? The gospel is basically you are born broken, sinful. Sin is, uh, sin is built not only into your hardware, it's also software that you love to download into your life. So you are on the hook and guilty. Your life is taking you in the wrong direction because of sin. You must hear the voice of God calling you to believe in Christ and repent and turn around. Turn away from your love life to sin and start the lifelong process of following Christ. That's what it means to repent. You have to have a turning point in your life. Do you believe God's word? Have you repented and had a turning point where you believe the truth about Christ? Now listen, this is the good news. This is the great news. Our sins offend God eternally. But Christ's suffering satisfies God eternally. What hope do you have of God accepting you forever and never ever changing his mind or casting you away? That Christ died in your place. His son took the penalty for you. If you're in Christ, he would never forsake his son just as he will never forsake you. You have to repent. You have to turn to Christ. It's God's plan for you. Here's the third one. What determines my destination? Well, believe God's word, repent of your sins, and then show your faith by loving others. Show your faith by loving others. Where does that one come from? Well, we just have to face up to the fact that this man, this rich man, lived with callous indifference toward those around him. Just to be clear, follow me here. It's not like God checked this guy's tax return and said, oh, if you had given a higher percentage to charity, you would have gotten into heaven. It's not compassion and charity he was lacking. He was lacking faith. He had not been shown mercy by God, therefore he was not showing mercy as an outpouring expression of his love. He didn't believe what he heard. He was trusting in his riches and his lineage to get in. 
He had a faith problem. But the good news is this. In this life, you and I, we can live with irrevocable joy that God will welcome us into heaven forever. But we also have to live with somber desperation because God will never welcome unbelievers into heaven. We have to reach them now. Listen, if you're here this morning, you're receiving a warning from beyond the grave. Saying, listen to the word of God, repent of sins, and show love and compassion in this life. Because if you remain unrepentant, selfish, and godless, and deaf to God's word, you're going to be condemned forever. The choice is yours. God won't force himself on you. I want to give you a challenge this week. What do I do? What do I do with this belief of hell? What do I do with all of this anxiety and this just, what do I do? I want you to prayerfully pick someone in your life this week whose life is showing no evidence of salvation whatsoever. And I want you to use whatever grace you need to lead up to it, but I want you after a series of text messages or conversation over coffee or Facebook chat or whatever, I want you to eventually get to the point where you have the courage to say to this person, I don't think you're going to heaven. And be willing to accept whatever happens after that moment. I said this in the first service, and one woman said, I feel God prompting me to say that to my boss. I said, you better not chicken out. Why would I do this? That doesn't seem very kind or loving to do this. No, it's not kind or loving to let people perish without reaching them. The Bible says, snatch others from the fire and save them. This should motivate us. This shouldn't force us into this place of despondency. Like, oh, there's, there's no hope. I, what can I do about No, this is motivating us, right? This is, in essence, what Jesus is doing. The religious leaders, the priests, the Bible teachers of his day were going to hell. And they were leading other people to hell, too. Jesus shared this story so that at the end of it, they would conclude, he just told us we're going to hell. And they got angry. So I want to challenge you to have the courage this week in love to speak the truth And to tell someone who you care about, listen, I just want you to know, I don't think you're going to heaven. And maybe God will open a door, pray that God would open a door so that you can go further down that road. It might take months for that person to recover from the shock that you sent through their heart. And that's good. That's really good. They'll thank you forever. Will you do it? Jesus did it. Luke did it by including it in his gospel. And he wants us to go and make disciples. Let's respond to this in prayer. Let's all bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. And let's just take a moment to prayerfully reflect on what we heard. Jesus, you're true. Uh, You don't hide things from us. You don't lie to us. You don't deceive us. I believe you are good. I believe you're just and loving. And I believe in hell. Father, it's just so petrifying to think about loved ones ending up there. And yet I know and rest in your sovereignty that you can save anyone. And so, Father, we don't lose heart. We are emboldened. We're encouraged. We have the hope of the world. We have the message of truth. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. But, Lord, we need courage. So give us courage to reach out with this message, with grace, and help us to see others facing their eternity long before it comes. And use us to save people through your truth. Father, I just 
believe there are some who came in here this morning putting this decision off, playing games with you, trying to blame you for all of the bad in the world, <coughs> questioning your justice. Lord, I hope they will just finally, once and for all, resolve in their hearts that you are a loving God who sent your Son into the world to die for them, who rose again, and who now opens wide the gates to eternal paradise forever to anyone who will respond. And Lord, I pray that there would be some this morning who are ready to respond. I just pray right now, giving them a chance to put into words what they're believing, saying something like this, Father in heaven, I trust what you say is true. I'm guilty and condemned and deserve to be away from you forever. But praise you that you would send your son to save me. Praise you that you would do away with my sins. Praise you that though your son died, he rose again. And so I can live again after death. My hope and my faith are in Christ alone. I have no other trust. I believe what you've said. Lord, I just pray that those who are trusting in Christ alone would be washed, would be filled with joy, would know once and for all that it's finished. Never will you leave them. Never will you forsake them. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.